for this morning is from Matthew 5, 38 through 48. This is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to the one who asks of you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please join me in prayer. Father, your word is a seed. Open our hearts, prepare the soil that we may receive the seed of your word. May it germinate there, grow, bear fruit, and may that fruit be a blessing to us, but also to the whole world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, I have a friend of mine who uh, is an adult, and about a year ago she became a Christian. Um, She went to a meeting a friend invited her to, and somebody there asked her, She wanted to be saved and uh, told her all the reasons that she should become a Christian. And my friend said, is there a downside? (laughs) I really love that question. Um, Over the last about 100 years, and I'm oversimplifying here, over about the last 100 years, Christianity has become an upside religion. And that's really a big change. Uh, And I don't know if anyone was more aware of this than than somebody named Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan was a farmer. He was educated in crop science, but he also had a PhD in New Testament Greek. He uh, started a farm in rural Georgia in the 40s um, called Koinonia Farm. And it, uh, it was the precursor to what Habitat for Humanity eventually became. Um, it was, a, it was a, a farm for weirdos. And at that time, weirdo meant an integrated farm. People with all different skin colors were gathered together at this farm working together. They uh, experienced quite a lot of the downside of Christianity at this farm. Their palm trees were cut down, their seat Uh, Their fields were salted. Um, The KKK set up a flaming cross. Uh, Nightly, people would drive by with machine guns and just spray the farm with bullets. One day, Jordan was visiting a Baptist church, and one of the 
you know, big leagues, muckety mucks, uh, was talking to Jordan and showing off a new cross that they had purchased. And the new cross cost um, $10,000. And Jordan said, ah, it's a pity you paid so much. There was a time when Christians came by those crosses for free. That's the difference I'm talking about. Upside Christianity, downside Christianity. It's remarkable that Jesus um, doesn't really get it. He doesn't really understand upside Christianity. He doesn't understand how important that is. Uh, He's got some followers. Finally, a group of people willing to follow Jesus, willing to go along with what he's on about. And he gathers them together and he's going to finally give them his teaching. You know, this is, this is sort of what I'm about. This is my spiel. And in his spiel, it's almost all downside. He starts off with some hints, saying, blessed are you when you were persecuted. What? No, that's not why we're in this. And then he talks about some things that's important to do, truth-telling, um, reconciling with enemies, uh, keeping promises, things like that. And then we finally get to this part, the part that I just read. And this is not upside Christianity. Do not resist evil. Turn the other cheek. Give to anyone who asks you. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. He doesn't get it. If you want to really grow a religion a movement, speaking from an insider here, um, you can't talk this way. This is just not how you do it. You have to clarify what everyone gets out of it, and then maybe down the road, once people are in, then you start talking about the fine print. Then you start talking about, but you do need to do a couple things. Jesus leads with all of that. Um, I want to take a couple minutes to look at exactly what he is saying here uh, so that we don't, we don't misinterpret this. And the reason I'm, I want to take some time on this is because these scriptures are notoriously misinterpreted. And just to put it simply, they're, they're misinterpreted by upside Christianity. Um, one of the ways they're misinterpreted is by making you think what it says is not really what it says. But I have news. As someone who knows New Testament Greek, I can tell you that the Greek word for enemy here really means enemy. That's the Greek nuance that we're looking at here. Um, When he says, love your enemies, what he really means there is, love your enemies. But one clarification, uh, one sort of interpretation that has sort of snuck in here and lodged itself that I want to clear up is this idea that Jesus is advocating um, passivity. Um, This idea that Jesus is saying to do nothing. And in popular culture, whenever somebody says, uh, you should turn the other cheek, they, they usually refer to an idea of passivity, and that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. And so I do, I do want to clarify this. He's not saying to do nothing. He's saying to go beyond mere retaliation. 
to go beyond revenge. Think about every other command we've looked at so far. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder people, I want you to go further. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, I want you to go further. You've heard it said that you uh, should keep your vows, I want you to go further and tell the truth no matter what. And now he's saying, you've heard it said that you should, um, uh, that, that, that it should be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, I want you to go further. So the first example he gives is um, the famous one about turning the other cheek. Um, I, I'm convinced by this particular interpretation, uh, which, which essentially says this, and, and I, need, uh, I need, Ben, you're closest, so you're gonna have to come up. So um, uh, Ben is a Roman soldier, and I'm a everyday Joe. Um, no, not, I was in a reference to you guys there. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just an ordinary, uh, ordinary Jew in occupied Palestine uh, under the thumb of Roman imperial power, you know, as one is. And, uh, and, and so the soldier comes up to me, and the soldier is going to um, attack me. He's going to hit me. Um, but interestingly, Jesus specifies the right cheek. Okay, so, uh, and now in this culture, you never use your left hand. Left hand is used for uh, unseemly type things. And so, Ben's right-handed, and Ben's gonna hit me on the right cheek. How would you do that? Yeah, exactly. Did you notice his hand? His hand was open. So he's gonna slap me with his right hand. Oh wait, no, that's my left. That's my left cheek, yeah, yeah, do it again. There, that's it, that's it. No, that's better, okay. So his hand's open, and he's going he's gonna to hit me, but he's not hitting me like, a, like an equal. He's not hitting me like an equal. He's backhanding me, right? So if I turn the other cheek, how are you going to hit me? If I say, okay, now hit me with this one. Yeah, it's more, it's, it's, it's the idea here is, and then that's how you would hit somebody with a fist. You can slap them, or you can hit them with a fist. But either way, it's a whole different power dynamic involved. So, thank you. <laughs> a backhanded slap is always different than either, you know, either a slap here, but more likely a, a punch. More likely a, um, someone with a fist is hitting you. And what they're basically saying is, fine, you're, you're, you're gonna attack me, but I want you to attack me as an equal. I want you to attack me as a human being, not as somebody under your thumb. The other examples have a similar sort of theme to them. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, if someone asks you to go one mile, you go the second mile. There was a law in Imperial Rome that said um, uh, a soldier who's traveling from one place to another, you know, there were no Ubers back then, and so they had to walk. And soldiers have tons of gear. And so one of the laws said that I could compel one of the subjects of the place that we're occupying to carry all my junk uh, one mile. But it could only be one mile. That was the law. And so if I'm just a regular guy and, then they, and, and the soldier needs to get from Bethel to Bethesda, he says, okay, carry my stuff, subject. Now what happens if I say, you know, I'm just gonna carry this the second mile? The whole power dynamic has once again shifted. I've gone from being a subject to someone who is willingly carrying this soldier's stuff. I don't know if you've ever walked with someone for a mile or walked with them for two miles, but it's hard to walk with somebody for two miles and not 
have some kind of a conversation, not have some sort of, you know, so do you have a family? How do you like Pilate? You know, who are you hoping for in the next election? You know, whatever, right? Like a conversation strikes up and then suddenly I've gone from being just a, a bland, nameless subject to a human being who is with this other person. The third example is this idea of court. It says, uh, he says, he says, if someone takes your um, uh, coat, give your cloak also, there's different translations there. But the idea is, is you know, I'm poor and I owe somebody money and I can't pay. So what they do is they take me to court and what they can do is they can sue me for my coat. They can sue me. If I don't have any money, they can at least take my coat. And what he's saying is somebody who is willing to do that, give them all your clothes. And the cloak was all they had left. That was the only clothes. So literally the picture is you've, you've, they've won in court, you give over your coat, all you have is the cloak, you give them the cloak and you're naked. Naked in court. And so what it does is it's a public shaming of the person who is suing you. Because what you do is you stand before all of them and you say, I am a human being. This is ridiculous that I'm being treated this way. It's appalling that I'm being treated this way. And as Paul, Paul says that you heap coals on their head. Coals of, of a, a kind of good shame. And then the last example, give anyone who asks of you, essentially means that if, if you're going to ask somebody for money, you would want them to give it to you. So treat anybody you come across who, who's asking for money as the way you would want to be treated if you were begging for money. None of this is passive. None of, none of this is, uh, is saying when violence comes along, just lay down and take it. It's not merely saying, yes, okay, violence, God's going to help me out one day, it'll be fine. It's also not a simple no to violence, not a resist, not a, not a he says resist not. And, and when he says resist, that one, we do need to clarify, he's talking about violent resistance. The idea here is something we've talked about before, and it's this idea of over-accepting. Um, in, uh, in the world of improvisation, it's called yes and. So if somebody presents a, a scene, somebody presents a scenario in improvisation, you, have, you seem to have two choices. You can say no to the scenario, you can say yes to the scenario and play along, or you can over-accept it. You can say yes and to the scenario, you can overwhelm the scenario and go further with it than they could have ever imagined. Clarence Jordan's daughter was having trouble at school. A boy kept um, making fun of her, knocking her books out of her hands in the hallway, essentially bullying her every chance he could get because of what her family was up to at Koinonia Farm. One day, um, her dad could tell she wasn't doing very well, and so her dad said to her, something wrong, are you okay? And so she finally told him about it, and he said, you know, I, I, uh, I have devoted my life um, following the teachings of Jesus, but I think he will um, forgive me 15 minutes while I beat the crap out of that kid. <laughs> and she said, hold on, Dad, you can't do that. He was serious. You can't, you can't do that. You've, you've built your life around this. Please don't do that. 
Um, and so he, he relents. And um, a few weeks go by, and he hasn't heard anything about this, and she seems to be fine. And so he follows up with her and says, are you okay? How is it going with the boy who's bullying you all the time? And she says, um, well, it stopped. How did it stop? She said, I came up with an idea. I noticed that I was always taller than he was, that I am taller than he was. And so I could always see him coming when he was coming around a corner or we were in a crowded hallway or whatever. I could always see him coming. And as soon as I saw him coming, I started gushing over him. Oh, here he comes. I can't wait. My boyfriend. Oh my goodness, he is so sweet. He is the best. And she would go on and on like this, completely embarrassing this bully, to the point where he would flee from her every time he got some glimpse of her. It really is a perfect example of what Jesus is talking about. This kind of over-accepting of the situation. It turns out what Jesus is commanding here is actually practically very useful. And it has been useful for generations, inspired lots and lots of people like Gandhi, like um, the civil rights movement, um, and their stance on nonviolence. Nelson Mandela was inspired by this, and many, many, many others. But Jesus isn't content with better tactics in the world. Yes, this works. Yes, it does. Christian peacemaker teams, that's another great example. It absolutely works, but Jesus is not content just with better tactics. He wants to go further than just outmaneuvering our enemies. He wants us to love our enemies. Now, this does assume persecution. It assumes, actually, we have enemies, and that's one of the weirdest things about Christianity today is that we don't actually have any enemies anymore. Now, we can, some Christians are really good at like making up enemies or finding enemies or, or, or um, pegging enemies or whatever. But Clarence Jordan was somebody with many, many enemies. And the way he got the enemy was not for what he personally believed, was not for his personal stances, but because he chose to align himself as Jesus aligned himself with people who were on the margins of society. He chose to align himself with those who experienced persecution, or with, with sorry, with those, yeah, with those who were, um, who were um, recipients of violence, discrimination, segregation, and so on. And so if you're wondering how to get enemies, just do that. Spend some time with the poor. Spend some time with people who are mistreated. And if we're in that situation, Jesus is not content with us versus them. He's not content with a group of people who say, we're going to align ourselves this way, and then the rest of the world is against us, and we'll just be this sort of beleaguered group of people, us versus them, we're doing the right thing, everyone else is doing the wrong thing. They're on the wrong side of history, we're on the right side of history, let's march on Christian soldiers and do the right thing. Jesus is not okay with that. This is the first time that love comes up in the Sermon on the Mount, and it has to do with enemies. Everything he has said up to this point in the sermon culminates at this point 
He's been telling us that his followers are to be salt and light in the world. The world needs to know what God is like. This is Jesus's primary point. What kind of God created this world? What does it mean to be God? What is God's relationship with us? People wonder, and Jesus says the answer is going to have to be you all. You're the ones to reveal the light. You're the ones to be the salt. You're the ones to act as God's body in the world. And here is the clearest picture of what God is like. You love your enemies. Why? Because God is the kind of God who loves his enemies, whose love is impartial, who loves even those who despise him. God is the kind of God who would willingly hand over his son to torture and death if it meant we have hope of enjoying an eternity with God. This is not a strategy to build the kingdom. It's not a different ethic for some other group of people. It's not an impossible ideal set up for us to realize that we need a savior and it's not something we can complacently ignore or save for later or leave to the super Christians while we focus on all that is upside about Christianity. Because according to Jesus, the downside is the upside. If we really want meaningful lives, if we really want blessing, if we really want to live in the light, to have fellowship with our creator, it will be by walking in the ways of life that is considered detrimental to our health. A way of life where crosses can be had for free and not for $10,000. Enemies are not so easily dismissed. A way of life that involves keeping promises, insisting on reconciliation and truth-telling. And most of all, a way of life that treats others the way God, we have discovered to our astonishment, the way God treats us, with love. That way of life ends up being symbolized by the cross. The cross is an unqualified downside. There's nothing more downside than a cross. But precisely because it is, God took as a symbol of love for the whole world and made the ultimate downside the ultimate upside. And we, who are followers of this God, take hold of the cross. Let us love our enemies. Let us overcome evil with good. Let us walk in the way of Jesus and let the world know just what this God is like. Amen. God, I'm really glad that um, when you revealed yourself, you revealed yourself in just this way and not some other way. I'm really grateful for that. I'm thankful that we get to see it and that we have 2,000 years of people who have testified to this and staked their lives on it. Lord, may we walk in the way of Jesus, embracing the cross. Help us to see the glory of the downside. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. 
And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.